podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, November 7th, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. Lately, we've been talking a lot about our brains the sophisticated, evolutionary masterpieces that give us rational thought and reason. Or not. According to Gary Marcus, a psychologist at NYU, our brains are nothing like the supercomputers that we sometimes compare them to. In fact, says Marcus, our brains are just plain kludgy. Marcus has a new book out that details what he describes as the haphazard construction of our memories and minds. Today, you'll hear about Marcus's kludge theory from a recent lecture he gave at the Solomon Gundy Center and a conversation he and I had in a local cafe. You'll also hear how his work at the NYU Center for Child Language is giving us new insight into the way our brains organize and understand the things that we say. My name is Gary Marcus. I'm a professor of psychology at New York University. And the book is called Kludge, which is a word not everybody knows. So it's an old engineer's term for a clumsy or inelegant solution to a problem. So something that gets the job done, but not necessarily an ideal way. And the subtitle of the book is The Haphazard Construction of the Human Mind. And the idea is that the human mind has been constructed as a kludge that evolution is a blind process, it's not very intelligent, and sometimes it makes good solutions and sometimes not so good. So what's an example of a useful kludgy solution? The word kludge comes from old engineering speak, and as Marcus points out, some of the best examples of kludges come from engineers. Engineers typically make kludges because they're in a hurry. The most famous example is in Apollo 13. This incident in the movies based on a true story. The astronauts in Apollo 13 had been moved to a space capsule because the main rocket or whatever had broken down. It turned out that they didn't have the right kind of air filters for the job. They had square air filters, but they had circular slots to put them into. And so the best scene in the movie is the engineer in Houston says to his crew, I need you to connect this thing, and he shows the square thing to this thing, he shows the circular receptacle using this, and he dumps all of the stuff from a cardboard box onto the table, and he says, you know, you have three hours to figure it out. And the crew manages to figure out a way to save the astronauts. And they build this crazy thing that uses duct tape and socks and all this kind of stuff and makes it a, a temporary solution. One of the astronauts said it wasn't very handsome, but it worked. That is the essence of a kludge. Now, human evolution appears to be one pretty sophisticated process, which begs the question, if evolution is so perfect, why would it create a clumsy brain? So you have to understand how evolution really works. So a lot of people start with this idea from what they think is from Darwin of survival of the fittest. Now that phrase isn't actually Darwin's, but it makes you think, oh, well, the fittest possible thing you could imagine would evolve, and people are always talking about how these creatures are sort of perfectly adapted to their niche and so forth. But what he really would have meant had he said the phrase that he didn't actually say would have been something like, you know, you have a bunch of options at any given moment, and the ones that happen to be around that are better than other ones, those are the ones that propagate. But whether the best possibilities are around at any given moment is a very complicated thing having to do with the sort of path, pathway that evolution takes through the landscape of evolution. If you think about evolution as a hill climber, which a lot of people do, then the thing about it is that evolution is a blind hill climber. It can follow a strategy that says something like, take small steps, only go up, never down. And when you take that strategy, what happens is you wind up at the top of a peak, but if it's more like a mountain range than just one single smooth mountain, that you wind up at the top of some little piddly hill instead of the top of the highest mountain. So 
Evolution doesn't know where it is on the landscape, and that's all it does. It takes small steps, it goes up. It doesn't have the good sense to say, maybe we should go back down and retrace our path, cross that ravine, go under that valley, and go up there, and then we'll really get to the top of the mountain. Evolution can't do that. So that's why evolution sometimes builds clumsy solutions. Think about the human spine, for example. It gets the job done. We can stand on, on two feet, and that's really great, but people have back pain all the time, and it'd be much better to have, say, instead of a single column supporting all your weight, sort of like a flagpole over stuffed with this big heavy head, you could have had like three columns and a tripod or four columns and shock absorbers, and evolution could have done much better had it had any, you know, intelligence. And according to Marcus, though kludges have been around for a while, up until recently, science has been resistant to accepting the notion of a disorganized brain. The notion of kludges isn't really new, even if the term is relatively recent. Darwin himself pointed to vestiges and things that didn't make sense. And in recent times, I think the person who's most thought about these things is the late Stephen Jay Gould. He talked about things like the panda's thumb. He called these things the remnants of the past that don't make sense in present terms. The useless, the odd, the peculiar, the incongruous. He said, these are the signs of history. All I really want to do is to say that basic notion that evolution doesn't build perfection, but it's sort of this tinkerer, ought to have consequences for the mind, too. So even though the idea of kludges has been around, it's been kind of absent from discussions about the human mind. The human mind always seems to get special status. Like, people didn't want to think about human beings as animals. They didn't want to think about human beings as the product of evolution. There's sort of slow progress on realizing that we are not the center of the universe. I think these insights um, about how human beings are, are subject to the same laws as other creatures often take a little while. And so it really hasn't been imported into, into psychology. but. Again, you look at your own eyes, and, and the human mind is just not that well designed. So where exactly did evolution go wrong? Marcus says it all boils down to the type of memory we've evolved to have. Evolution made one really foundational kind of mistake in building the human mind, which was to equip us with the wrong kind of memory. So the kind of memory that we have has a lot of evolutionary inertia behind it. It's very old. You find it in basically any creature that you look at. And, you know, fruit flies have it, spiders have it, monkeys have it. It's this thing called context-dependent memory or state-dependent memory that means that the way you remember things is not so much by knowing exactly where in your hippocampus it is, but by trying to find some clues, context or state or whatever that remind you of it. So the famous thing is if you study when you're drunk, you might as well take the exam when you're drunk because your, your state of alcohol inebriation is actually a reminder of the stuff you're trying to remember. You probably already realize at some level that your memory is not ideal and you probably at least have the occasional moment in which you wish that your memory could be better. The place I want to start is with a fundamental fact about psychology. That the kind of memory that we all have is what you might call cue-driven or context-driven. And what this means is that you don't just know where something is in your brain. You need some kind of reminder in order to get the piece of information. So if I tell you I would like to know the name of the 16th president of the United States, probably not that many of you could give that answer. That's a cue to a piece of information that you probably learned in grade school. It's probably still in your brain, but it's not a very clear cue, you know, you sort of confuse together the 16th president, the 15th president, I, I don't know. If I give you another cue, it might be more helpful. So if I tell you the guy was a good writer, that might be enough of a cue because there are only some presidents that are known as good writers. Or you could work backwards and you could say W probably isn't a good writer and you <laughs> figure it out. Um, eventually, I could give you some kind of clue that would be clear, unambiguous, very distinctive. I could tell you I'm talking about the dude with the tall hat and the long beard. And then everybody knows who I'm talking about. So different cues yield very different results in terms of how well you can get information out of, out of your brain. In computers, things work really very differently. And when one's trying to ask how 
well does a particular system work, it helps to have another system to compare things to. So I don't want to argue that computers are better than us in every way, but I will stand my ground and tell you that computer memory is organized better than our memory. Computer memory, every single piece of information that's stored is assigned to a very specific location. There's a kind of master map for all of the stuff that's stored in the computer. And that's what makes them so reliable. Human beings, you know, it's just not like that. Like, I got a message yesterday, somebody tells me to call me back at something like 863-5768 in area code 419, and by the time they get to the area code, I've lost the number. What I'm doing is I'm scrambling desperately, looking at my cell phone, trying to think, what is the code that I press? What is the number I press to hear the message again? I mean, this is the essence of human memory, is that we hear things once, we're not that likely to be able to remember them. And there are lots of cases, ranging from the sublime to the ridiculous, where we have trouble remembering things. So another example of this is airline pilots. You probably know that airline pilots have to keep checklists. And the reason for that is the same problem with memory interference, that if you want to know, like, if you pulled up the landing gear and you do it over and over again, day after day, then on any particular day, you might have confusion. You might think, I pulled up the landing gear this time, but you didn't really pull it up this time. You pulled it up last time, and that's no good at all. And that's why pilots absolutely have to use checklists, is to prevent any accidents that might arise from thinking you pulled up the landing gear when you hadn't. But sketchy memory isn't the only result of our kludgy brains. In fact, because of the way our brains have evolved to process information, we're susceptible to all sorts of influences which aren't, as Marcus points out, always rational. Cue-driven memory makes us very vulnerable to spin doctors. So Carl Rove's favorite example is the death tax versus the estate tax. One of these things sounds perfectly innocuous, and that's the estate tax, because who has estates? Well, that's rich people. You want to tax the rich people? Most of us don't really care. Um, the death tax, on the other hand, sounds positively fiendish, heinous, right? What are the two worst inevitable things in life? Death and taxes. And now you're going to roll them up into one package? No way. Forget about it. Nobody's going to support that. And in fact, the numbers reverse. It used to be that 70% of the people favored an estate tax, but you call it a death tax and only 30% favored. So this was probably the most profound example of what's called in the literature a framing effect, in which how you frame a particular question completely revises how people think about it. I'll give you another example, 99% pure, right? You see a soap that says 99% pure, you're like, that's practically organic, I'll take two, you're really excited. But if you should pause for a minute and think maybe this is the rest of it toxic, then you might just want to put it back on the shelf. So this is called framing, and probably you've heard about it before. Kahneman Tversky discovered it, Lakoff has talked about it a lot. The question is, why does it exist? Why should we evolve as creatures that are so, so gullible that we can fall for this stuff, that somebody can relabel it from the estate tax to the death tax, and suddenly we're like, yeah. Or suddenly we're like, no way, actually. Um, there was a, a kludgy bit of language for me. Uh, the reason that this happens, I submit to you, is because of what computer programmers would call garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out is the idea that even if you have a program that's perfectly properly coded, if the database that it works over is garbage, then you wind up with a crazy answer. The human mind winds up with garbage as data to work with. So you want to evaluate some political program, and what do you do? You think about the things that are relevant to the title of that program or something like that. You use this psychology of matching cues. And what matches death? Bad stuff. What matches taxes? Bad stuff. You're done. It's like bad stuff plus bad stuff equals very bad. Forget about it. What you don't do is to say, maybe my input data here isn't representative. Maybe it's like asking people in Manhattan how the whole nation will vote. You know, maybe this is unrepresentative data. The brain isn't built to do that. It just takes what it can get. We've evolved to use whatever information we remember, and the memory retrieval system itself is hardly accurate or reliable. So what's the ideal solution for all of this? What if we could make our brains Googleable? 
Imagine you could retrieve a friend's birthday from your memory by typing their name into your mental Google search engine, or that recipe for your favorite Thai dish with that ingredient you can never remember. It turns out that idea may not be as crazy as it sounds. I actually wrote a piece about this in the New York Times and the Sunday Magazine in April, and I got an email from somebody, an irate reader, who said, "You, you scientists are all wacko. Would you have a you know memory chip implanted in your brain?" And then the next paragraph is, "I thought not." And I'm like, "Dude, give me a chance to answer." Of course I would. It, my my whole career depends on me being able to remember all these exotic facts about you know the limitations of human memory and and the average age at which a child learns their hundredth vocabulary word and so forth. If I had a machine that could let me Google not just the stuff that's out there but all the stuff that happens. To me, I would, you know, I, I would certainly trade in, you know, a brand new BMW for that. Consider that they already have basically brain-machine interfaces that allow monkeys that have lost limbs to be able to move those limbs, move prosthetic limbs around. So I mean, we're we're slowly making progress on the kind of what is the the architecture of the brain? How does the brain transmit information? Because what you want to do is have the computer meet the brain where the brain already has set up protocols. Basically, I mean, there's a language of the brain we don't understand all of it. We'll need to understand more of it in order to have these brain chips work efficiently. But I think we will eventually. So down the road, maybe we'll be able to Google our memories. But what about now? Marcus is the director of the NYU Center for Child Language, and he studies the way babies interpret language with the hopes of better understanding how humans process and develop language. We do studies with seven-month-old infants, and they hear made-up sentences. We we create a language, and what we want to know is, do they understand anything about that language? So you hear a few sentences like la ta ta. And then those are all the A B B structure. And then the kids hear some new sentences. Let's say wo fe wo or wo wo fe. Some of these have the same grammar as you've heard before, and some of them different. The kids can actually tell the difference. Like they're seven months old. We're not paying them for their participation in the experiment. We're not giving them undergraduate credit if they get the right answer. I mean, they're they, they they're just there because their parents have brought them in. But they hear speech and they want to know what it's about. They try to figure out the abstract patterns, basically the grammatical rules that underlies that speech. And I think that's pretty interesting. How do you know that they know the difference? So we. Have have to use looking as a proxy for listening. So we see we measure how long they look at a set of lights or entertaining figures of some sort that are associated with particular kinds of sounds. And it turns out that they get bored if they hear the same thing over and over again. But they'll look longer if we're presenting something that's new and different. So this is what we call the habituation paradigm. It's basically built on the theory of boredom. If I keep saying the same thing over again, if I keep saying the same thing over again, if I keep saying the same thing over again, you will eventually get bored. But if I then suddenly say something new and different, you will perk up, and that's basically how we measure the kids. Why seven months? We wanted to look at kids that had enough understanding of English and enough whatever requisite neural machinery to be able to hear individual words as that. So one thing that that non-linguists don't immediately realize is that words in speech aren't the same as words on a page. So in in a page, you've got a space between every word. So at least you know what the words are. But in speech, if you actually look at a spectrogram, if you take this podcast and slow it down and look at spectrogram, it's not always obvious where the breaks are between the words because speech doesn't neatly correspond to those things. You, you have some words are connected together, and, and sometimes there are breaks within a word. And you kind of hesitate or so. There, there's an imperfect correlation. So there's a real challenge actually to figure out what the words are. We wanted to say, given that kids can already detect words, will they be able to detect grammars? Right? Because language is built not just on words, but on rules that, that put those things together. So we were looking at sort of the earliest time we thought we could get direct evidence about that. And it turned out that they could do it. Now, the other thing that that tells us is 
that there's probably something built into the mind. It doesn't prove it, but it strongly suggests there's something built into the mind to go out and understand language. And we've done other experiments, and kids don't make these same kinds of analyses of like sequences of music or animal sounds. So we, if we play for them, moo, oink, oink, they don't get it. They get it if it's la, ta, ta. So that tells you that like we're really predisposed to knowing that language is important and trying to understand it. One of the things that I'm most excited about in the book, although it's very technical, has to do with language and, and the way in which language is represented in the brain. So linguists talk about these syntactic trees. If you've ever taken a linguistics course, you'll, you'll see these diagrams. They're basically like old-fashioned diagrams for diagramming a sentence. So we call them trees. The, the root is the sentence node, let's say, and then it branches off. You have a noun phrase and a verb phrase, and the noun phrase branches off. You've got a determiner and a noun. The verb phrase has another verb and a noun phrase and so forth. Every linguistics textbook writes as if this is what the brain does. But if the rest of the arguments in my book are right in terms of problems with memory, what linguists are presupposing might not actually be right. And so we may have misunderstood the mechanics by which the brain understands language. I mean, this is sort of, you know, inside baseball, you have to be a, a linguist or cognitive science to really appreciate it. But I think one of the implications for the book is that the way that we think that the human mind represents language isn't really correct, and that the way we represent language is pretty clumsy. And so we have trouble, for example, with certain kinds of relatively simple sentences like people, people, left, left. It's four words long, and yet it kind of, you know, your brain explodes as you try to understand that sentence. When you have sentences inside of sentences, it's really hard to understand them. And I'm excited because I think that the general theory about the brain being kludgy helps to cast some light on why we have certain kinds of problems in language. Marcus hopes that his studies in language will lead to a better understanding about the way we process other information as well. But for now, it appears that we're stuck with our kludgy heads and duct tape fixes until somebody comes up with, well, a more sensible solution. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Thanks for listening. Do you love Science in the City podcasts? Then you should support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit Science and the City and click Join NIAS. Did you know that you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get our newest story downloaded every week automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. If you have any questions or comments about our show, we would love your feedback. So send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. If you want to know more about science in New York City, log on to our website, online at scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.